footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening and welcome to your nightmares and another episode of your favorite horror storytelling podcast, Dark Softly Tales. This is your host, Mav, and we continue on with part two of The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. The intro this week will be fairly short. I have felt distracted and saddened by the events of the past two weeks. And it's been hard for me to get into creativity mode. Thankfully, the story we are reading tonight was written for times precisely like these. It dives into the deeper meanings of life. What does it mean to live? What does it mean to have a soul? And what is it worth to you? Let's breathe together and sink into the frothy depths. We will be meeting the sea witch tonight. But don't worry, I got your hand. Let's enter the dark, shall we? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. At dawn, the tempest was over. Of the ship, there was not a bit to be seen. The sun rose red and bright out of the water, and it seemed as if the life came into the prince's cheeks. But his eyes were still closed. The mermaid kissed his fair, high forehead and stroked back his wet hair. She thought he resembled the marble statue down in her little garden. She kissed him again and wished that he might live after all. And now she saw in front of her the dry land, high blue hills on whose top the white snow shone as if swans were lying there. Down by the shore were lovely green woods, and in front of them lay a church or an abbey. She knew not what, but at least a building. Lemon and apple trees grew in the garden, and before the gate were tall palms. At this spot, the sea made a little bay. It was dead calm, but very deep, right up to the rocks, where the fine white sand was washed up. Hither she swam with the fair prince and laid him on the sand, but took care that his head should rest uppermost in the warm sunshine. Now the bells rang out from the great white building, and a number of young maidens came out through the gardens. The little mermaid swam further out, behind some high boulders which stuck up out of the water, laid some sea foam over her hair and her bosom so that no one could see her little face, and there she watched to see who would come to the poor prince. It was not long before a young girl came that way and seemed to be quite terrified, but only for a moment. 
Then she fetched more people, and the mermaid saw the prince revive and smile on all those about him. But on her, out there, he did not smile. He had, of course, no notion that she had rescued him. She felt very sad, and when he was carried into the building, she dived sorrowfully down into the water and betook herself home to her father's palace. She had always been quiet and thoughtful, but now she became much more so. The sisters asked her what she had seen the first time she went up, but she did not tell them anything about it. Every evening and morning did she go up to the place where she had left the prince. She saw how the fruits in the garden grew ripe and were picked. She saw how the snow melted on the high mountains, but the prince she never saw. So she always turned homeward sadder than before. It was her one comfort to sit in her little garden and throw her arms about the fair marble statue, which was like the prince. But she took no care of her flowers, and they spread as in a wild wood over all the paths and wove their long stems and leaves in among the branches of the trees so that it was quite dark there. At last, she could contain herself no longer, but told one of her sisters, and at once all the others got to know it, but nobody else except them and just one or two other mermaids who didn't tell anyone but their dearest friends. One of these could tell who the prince was. She too had seen the feet on the ship and knew where he came from and where his kingdom lay. Come, come little sister, little sister, come, little sister, come with us. Come Sisters, come with us, said the other princesses. And with their arms about each other's shoulders, they rose in a long line out of the sea in front of the spot where they knew the prince's palace was. It was built of a kind of pale yellow shining stone with great marble steps that you could go down straight into the sea. Stately gilded domes rose above the roof, and between the pillars that surrounded the whole building stood statues of marble which seemed alive. Through the clear glass of the tall windows, you could see into the noble halls where costly silk curtains and tapestries were hung, and all the walls were decked with great paintings that it was delightful to gaze at. In the middle of the largest hall, a great fountain splashed. Its jet soared high up towards the glass dome in the roof, through which the sun shone on the water and all the beautiful plants that grew in the wide basin. Now she knew where he lived, and thither she came on many an evening and night upon the water. She swam much closer to the land than any of the others had dared to do. She even went right up the narrow canal beneath the stately balcony of marble, which cast a shadow over the water. Here she would sit and gaze at the young prince, who believed himself to be quite alone in the bright moonlight. Many an evening she saw him sail to the sound of music in his splendid boat where the flags waved. 
She peeped out from among the green weed, and if the breeze caught her long silver white veil, and anyone saw it, they thought it was a swan flapping its wings. Many a night, when the fishermen lay out at sea with torches, she heard them telling all manner of good about the young prince, and it made her glad that she had saved his life when he was being tossed half-dead upon the waves, and she thought of how close his head had lain on her bosom, and how lovingly she had kissed him then. He knew nothing whatever about it, and could not so much as dream about her. She became fonder and fonder of human people, and more and more did she long to be able to go up amongst them. Their world, she thought, was far larger than hers, for they could fly far over the sea in ships, climb high up above the clouds on the lofty mountains, and the lands they owned stretched over forest and fields farther than she could see. There was a great deal she wanted to know, but her sisters could not answer all her questions. So she asked the old grandmother. She knew well the upper world, as she very properly called the countries above the sea. If the human people aren't drowned, the little mermaid inquired, can they go on living always? Don't they die as we do here in the sea? Yes, said the old lady. They have to die too, and besides, their lifetimes are shorter than ours. We can live for three hundred years, but when we cease to be here, we only turn to foam on the water. I have not even a grave down here among our dear ones. We have no immortal souls. We never live again. We are like the green weed. Once it is cut down, it never grows green again. Humankind, on the other hand, have a soul that lives always after the body has turned into earth. It rises up through the clear air, up to the shining stars. Just as we rise up out of the sea and look at the human people's country, so do they rise up to unknown beautiful places which we will never attain. Why did we have no immortal souls given to us? said the little mermaid very sadly. I would give all my hundreds of years I have to live to be a human being for only one day and then get a share in the heavenly world. You mustn't go thinking about that, said the old lady. We have a much happier and better lot than the people up there. So then I've got to die and float like foam on the sea? and not hear the noise of the waves and see the lovely flowers and the red sun? Can't I do anything at all to gain an everlasting soul? No, said the old lady. Only if a human being held you so dear that you were to him more than father or mother, and if with all his thoughts and affections he clung to you and made the priest lay his right hand in yours with the promise to be faithful to you here and forever, then his soul would flow over into your body, and you too would have a share in the destiny of men. He would give you a soul and still keep his own. But that can never happen. The very thing that is counted beautiful here in the sea... I mean, your fish's tail, 
They think horrid up there on the earth. They have no notion of what's proper. Up there, people must needs have two clumsy props, which they call legs, if they're to look nice. The little mermaid sighed and looked sadly at her fish's tail. Let's be cheerful, said the old lady. We'll jump and dance about for the three hundred years we have to live. It's long enough in all conscious. After that, one can sleep it out on the pleasanter in one's grave. Tonight, we're to have a court ball. Truly, it was a magnificent affair, such as you never see on earth. The walls and ceilings of the great ballroom were of glass, thick but clear. Many hundreds of large mussel shells, rose red and grass green, were set in rows on either side. The blue flame burning in them that lighted up the whole hall and shone out through the walls, so that the sea outside was lit up. You could see all the innumerable fish, big and little, swimming round the glass walls. The scales of some of them shone purple-red, on others, they shone like silver and gold. In the middle of the hall, there flowed a broad, rapid stream, and on it, mermen and mermaids danced to their own beautiful singing. Such charming voices no one on earth possesses. The little mermaid sang the most beautifully of them all, and they clapped their hands at her, and for a moment, she felt joy at her heart for she knew that she had the loveliest voice of anyone on earth or sea. But soon, she began to think again about the world above her. She could not forget the handsome prince, and her own sorrow that she did not, like him, possess an immortal soul. So she stole out of her father's palace, and while everything there was song and merriment, she sat sadly in her little garden, there she heard the beating waves sounding down through the water, and she thought, Sure, he is sailing up there, he whom I love more than my father or mother, he to whom my thoughts cling and in whose hand I would lay the destiny of my life. I would risk everything to win him and an immortal soul. While my sisters are dancing in my father's palace, I will go to the old sea witch, which I've been dreadfully afraid of her, but it may be she can advise me and help me. So the little mermaid went off out of her garden towards the roaring maelstrom behind which the witch lived. She had never been that way before. No flowers grew there and no sea grass. Only the bare gray sandy bottom stretched out round the maelstrom where the water whirled around like a roaring mill wheel and swept everything it cut hold of down with it into the steep. Right through those tearing whirls, she must go to enter the sea witch's domain. And here, for a long way, the only path ran over hot, bubbling mire, which a witch called her peat moss. Behind it lay her house, in the middle of a hideous wood, 
all the trees and bushes of it were popeye, half animal and half plant, which looked like a hundred-headed snakes growing out of the ground. All of their branches were long, slimy arms with fingers like pliant worms, and joint after joint they kept in motion from the root to the outermost tip. Everything in the sea that they could grasp, they twined themselves about and never let it go. The little mermaid was in terrible fear as she stopped outside the wood. Her heart beat with terror, and she almost turned back. But then she thought of the prince and of the human soul, and so she took courage. She bound her long flowing hair close about her head so that the pulpi should not catch her by it. She joined her two hands together on her breast and darted along as a fish darts through the water in amongst the terrible pulpi, which stretched out their pliant arms and fingers after her. She saw that every one of these held something it had caught, and hundreds of little arms held it like strong bands of iron. Men who had been lost at sea and had sunk deep down there looked out white skeletons. From among the arms of the pulpi, rudders of ships and chests they held fast, skeletons of land beast and even a little mermaid, which they had caught and killed. That, to her, was almost the most frightful thing of all. Now she came to a great slimy clearing in the wood, where large, fat water snakes wallowed, showing their ugly, whitey-yellow coils. In the center of the clearing was a house built of the white bones of men. There the sea witch sat, making a toad feed out of her mouth as we make a little canary bird eat sugar. The hideous fat water snakes she called her little chicks and let them coil about her over great spongy bosoms. I know well enough what you want said the sea witch and a silly thing too all the same you shall have your way for it'll bring you to a bad end my pretty princess you want to be rid of your fishtail and have two props to walk on instead like humans so that the young prince may fall in love with you and you may get him and an immortal soul with that the witch laughed so loud and so hideously that the toad and the snakes tumbled down to the ground and wallowed there. You've come just in the nick of time, said the witch. Tomorrow, after sunrise, I couldn't help you till another year came around. I shall make a drink for you, and with it you must swim to the land before the sun rises. Put yourself on the beach there and drink it up. Then your tail will part and open into what men call pretty legs. But it'll hurt. It'll be like a sharp sword going right through you. Everybody that you see will say you're the prettiest human child they ever saw. You'll keep your swimming gait and no dancer will be able to float so long like you. Every step you take will be as if you are treading on a sharp knife, 
so that you'll think that your blood must gush out. If you can bear all that, I will do as you wish. Yes, said the little mermaid with a faltering voice as she thought of the prince and winning an immortal soul. But remember, said the witch, when you've once taken a human shape, you can never become a mermaid again. And you can never go down through the water to your sister's or to your father's palace. And if you don't win the love of the prince, so that for you he forgets father and mother and clings to you with all his thoughts and makes the priest lay your hands in one another's so that you become man and wife, then you won't get your immortal soul. On the first morning after he is married to anyone else, your heart will break, and you will become foam on the water. It is my wish, said the mermaid, pale as a corpse. But I must be paid too, said the witch, and it's not a small matter that I require. You have the loveliest voice of anyone down here at the bottom of the sea. And with it, no doubt, you think you'll be able to charm him. But that voice you must give me. I must have the best thing you possess as the price of my precious drink. I shall have to give you my own blood in it, that the drink may be as sharp as a two-edged sword. But if you take away my voice said the little mermaid. What have I left? Your beautiful form, said the witch. Your floating gait, your speaking eyes. With them you can easily delude a human heart. What? Have you lost courage? Put out your little tongue and I'll cut it off for the price. And you shall have the potent drink. So be it, said the little mermaid, and the witch put her cauldron on the fire to boil the magic drink. Cleanliness is a good thing, she said, and scoured out the cauldron with some snakes which she tied in a knot. Then she scratched herself in the breast and let the black blood drip to the pot. The steam took the most dreadful shapes, enough to fill one with fear and horror. Every moment the witch cast something afresh into the cauldron, and when it was really boiling, the sound was like that of a crocodile weeping. At last, the drink was ready, and it looked like the clearest of water. There you are, said the witch, and cut off the tongue of the little mermaid. Now she was dumb. She could neither sing nor speak. Suppose I should catch you when you're going back through my wood, said the witch. Just throw one drop of that drink on them, and their arms and fingers will break into a thousand bits. But there is no need for the little mermaid to do that. The pulpi shrank back in fear before her when they saw the shining drink which glittered in her hand as if it had been a twinkling star. So she passed quickly through the wood 
and the marsh and the roaring maelstrom. She could see her father's palace. The torches were quenched in the great ballroom. No doubt everyone in there was asleep. But she dared not go to them now that she was dumb and was going to leave them forever. It seemed as if her heart must burst asunder with sorrow. She stole into the garden and took one flower from each of her sister's flower beds and blew on her fingers a thousand kisses towards the palace and rose up through the dark blue sea. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mav Sky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mav Sky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and, of course, her brand new release, Cold Hangs the Midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today. <laughs> <laughs>